Please turn with me to our scripture reading for this morning, which can be found in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Again, the text that Pastor Dave will be preaching from this morning is 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Again, in verse 19, it reads, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, not be, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I I may share with them in its blessings. Thank you, Pastor Cruz. Thank you, Azure, for that ministry of music as well, as it fit very well, I think, with the passage we're talking about this morning. You saw in the beginning we all read together Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and we're really talking about salvation this morning, and uh, evangelism, specifically so. Um, in the past three months, if you've been a part of my Sunday school class, you know I've been on a superhero kick. Again, okay, that's just part of my... Um, personality, uh, but we've been talking about heresies that have existed in the church for a long period of time and some modern, and we've been using superheroes as a way of drawing an analogy between these heresies and what they teach to kind of help us remember what these different heresies are about. And um, so in comparison, in com- these comparisons to superheroes, um, it's been a fun exercise for me for sure, both to learn and also to teach about these subjects. Well, in keeping with that same theme, unless you've been living under a rock for the past few weeks, you might have heard of one of the biggest superhero movies uh, that's out currently in theaters called Avengers Endgame. Uh, That movie is actually the conclusion of a series of 22 Marvel superhero films, and it's such a big deal that uh, it's, it's soon going to become the highest grossing film of all time, if it hasn't done so already. I won't bore you with the plot, And for those of you who want to still see it, I won't spoil it for you either. But the basic gist of the movie is that in the previous film, there was a villain named Thanos who was able to wipe out half of all human life and actually all life in the universe using some magic stones. And now this team of heroes called the Avengers is setting out to undo the damage that Thanos caused. And in one of the trailers for this movie, we see all of the heroes joining together, repeating the phrase, whatever it takes whatever it takes. In 1 Corinthians 9, which is our passage this morning, I believe Paul is giving us the same basic message. In verses 19 through 23, which Pastor Cruz just read for us, uh, Paul describes his basic approach for sharing the gospel. And when it comes to adapting himself in different contexts 
so that he might win the greatest number of people, Paul basically has that same mantra, whatever it takes. I think that's a good principle for us to operate under as well when it comes to reaching the lost. But short phrases like this are easy to say. They sound cool, make for good titles, but we have to unpack them a little bit and flesh them out to understand exactly what we mean. What are the limits of such a phrase? What are we to do with that? So in this message, we're going to dive into this passage and discover exactly what we mean by the phrase, whatever it takes, and we'll study Paul's words in order to do so. But before we can really explain our passage, we really need to give some context, okay? So hopefully you're already in that passage that uh, Pastor just read. Uh, 1 Corinthians in general is a letter written to the Corinthian church, or the church at Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. Paul introduced the gospel to the city around A.D. 52, and this story is told in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. So you don't have to turn there, but that's where it's first introduced to the city of Corinth. And enough individuals were converted that a church was eventually formed. So you fast forward a few years to the writing of this letter, 1 Corinthians, which some take to be written around A.D. 55 or so. So a few years later, Paul hears of some problems that have arisen in the church and There are some divisions, some accounts of immorality, abuse of the Lord's Supper, and much more. If you just flip through the book, you'll see a bunch of different issues and and subheadings that are usually put there in bold for you to help you see the different things Paul had to write about. Here, in our passage, uh, Paul had to address the issue of Christian liberty. So, in the previous chapter to the one we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 8 Um, Paul addresses the dispute that had come up about meat sacrifice to idols. So apparently, what we can reconstruct from what he says is that members of the church were arguing over whether or not a Christian could eat meat that had been previously offered on pagan altars, perhaps was left over, and then sold in the local market. Some people who were believers said no, since that meat was now associated with a pagan god, and others said yes because there really is no such thing as other gods, if you really think about it. So it didn't matter where it came from. Paul basically answers this question, if we just summarize what he says, by saying that the latter group is right. There really is no such thing as another god. And if we think about it in the world, there, all these false gods are nothing at all. They're figments of people's imagination. And there's nothing wrong with eating this particular meat in that context. But that's not all that he says. He says, nevertheless, there are those Christians who have so-called weak consciences, as he says. And even though there shouldn't be anything wrong with this practice, for them, in their heart, they would be going against their own conscience, their own feelings, and therefore sinning. So therefore, Paul makes the conclusion that even though he or any other Christian would have any right to go ahead and eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols, he chooses to intentionally limit this freedom when he is around those of weaker conscience. Why? Because he doesn't want them to to go on sinning. He doesn't want to be the cause of them sinning, betraying their own conscience and becoming confused on the issue and hearing what he's doing and not being sure of them themselves and going against what they believe. And so... Paul makes the larger point that he is willing to adapt himself 
for the sake of the gospel. He goes on to list other freedoms that he has as a Christian. In fact, in chapter 9, he gives three examples. And this is earlier on in chapter 9 than what we're looking at. He says that he has the right to eat and drink. He says he has the right in Christ to marry a believing wife, if he so wanted to, just like Peter did. He says, thirdly, that he has a right to make a living preaching the Gospels, just like others make a living off of their particular trade. But nevertheless, he's not just only arguing for his own freedoms. He comes back to that same conclusion he made about meat sacrificed to idols. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.15, look there, it's only a few verses away. Verse 15, he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Right? We can just stop right there. That's a good summary of how he's treating all this. Even though he could, for example, talk more about money, about raising support and, and trying to support himself, he's saying, I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to my hearers. He doesn't want to do anything that would hinder the gospel going forward or hinder their hearing what he has to say. That brings us to today's passage, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. And here, Paul uh, shifts the focus from those within the church to those outside the church. His basic principle remains the same. And, and I can highlight that for you in our key verse, which is 1 Corinthians 9.22. So look there at verse 22, and he says this, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. In other words, Paul is saying, I am also willing to adapt myself to the unbelieving world around me so that nothing I do is a hindrance to them hearing the gospel. In short, we could summarize Paul's message here in this short sentence, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes for Paul to reach the lost, short of sin, he is willing to adapt. Let me say that again. Whatever Paul or whatever it takes for Paul to reach the lost short of sin, he is willing to adapt. That's his main idea. So let's flesh that out a little bit. How does he explain this idea? And we'll see that as we go through this text, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 in greater detail. So what I wish I could do, and I wish I would have made a PowerPoint for this, it's always easier to see visually, but if you want to see how the text is laid out, we've got two bookends, really, in this, this passage. You have verse 19, which is the summary statement, okay, if you were to lay this all out on paper. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. But then you have that same idea restated at the end of this section in verses 22b, the second half of 22, and 23. So jump there, the second half of 22. It says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So you see there repeated two different times the same main idea uh, that Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to reach the lost. So that surrounds the section. Then you find in between there, verses 20, 21, and 22, the first part of it, three ways that is fleshed out. Three different examples of this principle put into practice. So in verse 20, he says how he's willing to adapt his approach to the Jews. Verse 21 shows how he adapts this method when he is among the Gentiles, And verse 22, at least the first half, says how he adapts his message, his methods, 
when he is around those who are weak. So again, one main point illustrated in three different ways, okay? And that's how we're gonna go through this. Now, let me just clarify something. When I say adapt, you know, a thousand things could come into your mind. He, do, he isn't willing to change the gospel, right? He never once, in all of the book of Acts or any of the Pauline letters, changes the message that he is um, preaching, right? That stays the same. So when we talk about adapting to different uh, cultures, different people around him, that's not what he has in view. But when he says change, he's talking about non-sin issues, things that really don't matter, things that can help him in presenting the gospel, maybe by taking away any stumbling blocks in front of them. And we'll see what this really means as we get into those three examples. So let's go uh, verse by verse, looking down at verse 19. Let's, let's go through it. Uh, verse 19, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So notice that word free. And if you're able to flip back or see on your, in your Bibles, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 9, 1, the verse, first verse of chapter 9, he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? So that word free is meant to tie in all of the subject matter that he's been covering up to this point. Okay? He is saying that on one hand, he is free. He, he is not technically bound by the conscience or culture of others. Okay? So it's not that he has to do uh, any of these things. He's already established that he's not bound uh, by others' consciences when uh, it comes to within the church, when he talked about meat sacrificed to idols. He's already said that he was free to earn a living from the gospel as well. But nevertheless, Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all. Again, he's already demonstrated that same thing from within the church in the examples I just mentioned, eating food and raising support for his ministry. For example, he said in 1 Corinthians 8, going back to the previous chapter, verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest it make my brother stumble. So in other words, if eating meat sacrificed to idols causes somebody to feel emboldened to eat meat themselves, sin against their own conscience, then Paul's saying, I will have led them to that sin, and therefore I will refrain from eating meat in front of them for their sake. Again, for the second issue, raising support, 1 Corinthians 9, 12, Paul refrains from asking the Corinthians too often for money because he doesn't want to put an obstacle between someone and Christ. He doesn't want somebody to think that he's only concerned about money, so he refrains. He treats himself as a servant to other believers. And please understand, we're just making a passing point there. That's not against people raising support or anything for missionaries. I think they definitely should. Paul is just looking at his own situation and trying to figure out what is wise in his case. But here in verse 19, this is where we see a shift in Paul's argument. And now he's shifting to talking about unbelievers outside of the church. So that previous section, we can see very clearly he was talking about other believers. He didn't want to lead them into sinning. But here's where that shift takes place, verse 19. And we know that because he says, I have made myself a servant to all in order that I might win, there's the key word, more of them. That word win, I think, is very obvious. It, it shows that he's not talking about believers anymore. He's talking about winning, i.e. leading someone to accept Christ for the first time, that is, unbelievers. And so Paul's not willing to only give up some of his privileges and adapt his way of living for the sake of believers, but even more so for unbelievers, 
so that as many can be saved as possible. So what we're going to see here is that Paul is willing to adapt on what you could say are are non-moral issues in whatever way is necessary to reach as many people as possible. And the issues that Paul have already brought up, such as meat sacrificed to idols, uh, those were objectively speaking non-moral issues. Okay, some people felt they were, but he he sets them straight and says, no, they really, you know, it's nothing. It's a non-issue. They didn't matter. And so likewise here, Paul is saying that he is also willing to bend, that is, change his preferences, adapt as needed, do whatever it takes, short of sin, to reach the lost for Christ. So what does that look like in practice, right? That's a good principle. What does it mean? Paul gives us three examples of how he's winning, uh, willing to adapt to win lost people. Verse 20, first example, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Uh, in order to win Jews, it says. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So we see from these next three verses, verses 20 through 22, that Paul analyzed his culture. Okay, as you just read this, you're like, oh yeah, he's, he's looking at the people he's around, the people he comes in contact with the most, and he's dividing them up into categories. He's saying, okay, I, I can look out over the, the context of people and say, there's Jewish people that I interact with, there's Gentile people, and then there's this third category of weak, which we'll get into in a little bit. But he at least has the ability to look out and say, okay, this is not one group of people. You know, we could even say in Lebanon that there isn't just one group of people, you know. We might be tempted to think that, oh, well, we all live in the same place. But in reality, there could be several different subsets of people that we come into contact with different cultures and, and different things. Um, and the first group of people that he's willing to adapt to, he says, for the sake of his witness, is the Jewish people. Now, of course, you could say if anybody was Jewish, it was Paul, right? He was born Jewish. He was raised Jewish. Uh, listen to the way he describes himself in Philippians 3.5. You don't have to turn there. But in this case, I like the New Living Translation, which I don't use very often. It's a paraphrase, but I, I like it here. It says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I think it's a great way to say it. A real Hebrew if there ever was one. If anybody was Jewish, it was Paul. But nevertheless, since he's become converted, we all could say there are very many things that have changed in his life. Paul's beliefs about the Messiah have changed, obviously but also his beliefs about the law of Moses and how that's applied now that he's under Christ, as well as the customs that he no longer observed. So in Christ, Paul no longer needed to feel like he needed to keep the hundreds of laws or thousands of laws that were enforced by the Pharisees. He no longer needed to celebrate each and every Jewish feast. He was free from those things in Christ. And yet, notice how in Paul's life as a missionary, Even though he was free from those things, he still adapted himself and adopted certain Jewish practices when he was around Jews so that he wouldn't make any stumbling blocks to him sharing the gospel. So I'm going to give you two examples of this. Uh, If you've never caught these before, it's, it's fascinating. One example of this is how he treated the issue of circumcision with his young protege, Timothy. Now, Paul argues elsewhere, okay, and indeed, the whole book of Galatians argues this, that circumcision means nothing in terms of salvation. 
Neither brings you closer to God or further from God. In fact, Paul railed against those who said it was necessary for salvation. But nevertheless, listen to what he does in Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. So turn there for a second. Keep your hand in 1 Corinthians 9. I do want you to see this because it's so significant. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. And I'll read this for us. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. This is where Timothy's first introduced. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek, and they went on their way through the cities, and they delivered uh, to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and they increased in their numbers daily. So that might strike you as very, very strange. If you've read the whole of Galatians before, you're like, wait a second, he's already argued that this is not necessary for salvation. This is not something I'd expect Paul to do. In fact, liberal scholars have said, well, this must not even be part of the Bible. Somebody must have added it later because it just seems so out of character with Paul. Of course, if all scripture is inspired by God, this includes that. I believe this is part of the Bible. This is meant to be here. And what's, what's going on is that um, Paul didn't want this to become an unnecessary roadblock. You know, on its own, circumcision was a non-moral issue. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if Timothy was circumcised or not circumcised. But he said, you know what, so that this doesn't become a stumbling block for the Jews you are around, Timothy, you're going to be interacting with people of a lot of Jewish background. And this is going to get on their minds over and over again. Are you circumcised? Are you really, you know, as Jewish as you need to be? I don't want that to become a concern for you. So he has him go through with it so that it isn't an issue later on. Fascinating. A second example of Paul's willingness to bend to certain Jewish customs is in Acts 12. So you're already in Acts. Might as well just turn back a few pages. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 17. Paul and Luke come to Jerusalem And uh, the church leaders relate to Paul about a certain rumor that's going on about him. Hold on, I might have the wrong passage here. One second, don't want to lead you astray. Yeah, I'm sorry, we're in Acts 21. I had, see, that's what happens when you, you know, you do the little the flip in the numbers. Not 12, but 21. Acts chapter 21, verse 21. Sorry about that. Now we're on the right page, literally. <clears throat> Acts chapter 21, verse 21. Paul's coming to Jerusalem. And this is where the leaders are warning him about something. They say, in verse 21, And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. Okay, this is the rumor that's going around about Paul. There's some people of Jewish background, they're saying that, Paul, when you come and preach, you're telling them to throw out everything. Okay, it's a bit of an exaggeration. It's not what Paul's telling them to do. There's more to the story, but it's a gross exaggeration and and distortion of his message. So what's supposed to be done? The church leaders tell him in Acts 21, 23 and 24 now, 
Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, probably a Nazarite vow from the context. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And you know what? Paul follows this advice. He's not bound by any Jewish practice to have to do this. He's not bound to have to pay for their sacrifice for this Nazarite vow or to go with them and purify himself. He knows all that stuff is done away with. But the the leaders tell him, so that you don't cause an offense, so that this is not something that's constantly on other people's minds, just go ahead and do it, so that your your message won't be hindered, so that there isn't any unnecessary stumbling block. Paul knows that washing himself, you know, doing this purification right or paying for the sacrifice, it doesn't matter either way. In Christ, it's a non-moral issue. So if that's the case, better to get it out of the way so that it doesn't hinder what he has to say. Paul follows this advice. So these are the two ways in which Paul became like a Jew to win the Jews. When he says this back in our passage now, 1 Corinthians 19, these are two real ways in which he has actually done this. Where he said, to to the Jews I became as a Jew. That's how. We just saw it. Now let's go to our second way Paul is willing to adapt. Way number two, to Gentiles, Paul became like a Gentile. So back in 1 Corinthians... Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. It's what I meant to say. Chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. We're in verse 21. He says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So the second cultural group that Paul saw around him was the Gentiles, or those outside the law, as he calls them. Now again, Paul isn't speaking here of Gentile converts to Christianity. He is speaking about Gentile unbelievers. Again, because he talks about winning them. That's a repeated word he uses, that I might win those outside the law. So the the question again is raised, how does he become as one outside the law? A classic example of this is found in Paul's witness on Mars Hill in the city of Athens in Acts 17. Uh, And I'm not going to read the whole story to you, and uh, if you'd like to turn there, you can. Uh, But if not, I'll just read these out loud for you. What did he do in Mars Hill? It's a long story. Can't read the whole thing for the sake of time. But here's what happened. Number one, Paul went to this place. It was in Athens, okay? And he's preaching the gospel to an entirely Gentile community, to these philosophers, to these people who have no knowledge of the law, don't have a Jewish background, and we'll see how he does things a little bit differently in this context. First thing we could see from this story, if we're just picking you know, different lessons out of it, is that Paul adapted where he presented the gospel, and he went to the marketplace. He went to where the people were. Acts 17, 16 and 17 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, that's one location, and here's the key part, in the marketplace every day, with those who happen to be there. So you see Paul reasoned in the synagogue for Jews, but he also went outside of the synagogue to the marketplace. Why? Because that's where everybody was. If they weren't Jewish, that's where they went. And you know, I, I couldn't help but think, I really appreciate our, um, 
our, our example of doing Family Fun Day in the years that we've done it, and I know there's talks about us uh, possibly doing that in the future again. If you've been here for any number of years, you remember that, where we've had just many different games and many different things for people to do, and we present the gospel, and there's, there's music, and there's all, all of us coming together as a church in the past when we went to the Avon Playground and put this on for our community. I love it because I see in this, this passage that kind of principle being worked out us going to where the people are, right? That, that event was intentionally held off campus from here in our community so that we could go where the Gentiles, where the lost are, um, so we can reach them. I, I love that we've done that, and hopefully God will give us uh, the ability to do something like that again in the future. Uh, second, Paul became like his Gentile audience by learning their culture, their beliefs, their way of thinking, so that he could use those things in his presentation of the gospel. Okay, this is another difference. Acts 17, 22, and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way religious. For as I passed on and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So here we see Paul's familiar with the culture, uh, or as Pastor Tim Keller would say, uh, their cultural narratives, uh, the truths that they hold dear, uh, ones that were ingrained in their minds, in their culture, and he used them in his presentation of the gospel. He saw this inscription to an unknown God, and he used it as a springboard to be able to preach the true gospel to these people. Um, You know, I, I think sometimes, individually, when we witness to others, One reason why somebody might not get what we're saying is because we might not be asking the questions that people in our culture are asking, right? We might come at a person straight off the bat and say, you know, have you ever thought about inheriting eternal life? And people might say, what in the world are you talking about? Eternal life? Inheriting? Child of God? I don't understand what those words mean. There were were a a series of... uh, polls and things that were conducted recently, and I think they appeared on CNN and other you know, places, that said that we are now in a place where we are, uh, there's just as many people who have no religious affiliation in this world than there are people who are Christians, right? More and more, this world is becoming a non-Christian nation, an unchristian nation, just a non-churched world, not only that people have like, grown up in the church and then forgotten about it and wandered off, but people who have never uh, ever entered the doors of a church before and don't understand the language. And so, um, you know, there's this problem that we're facing that when we talk about words like sin, we have to do some explaining. It's not that you, you walk away from the term sin or don't ever talk about it. It's just that people have never grown up in the church to understand what that means. And so we have to kind of come at it and say, no, by that we mean this. I really like how Pastor Reed has said in many of his sermons that a good definition of sin is selfishness, right? That's in terms, I think, that if somebody's never been to church before, doesn't really hear the word sin except in kind of a mocking sense to help them understand what that might mean. But somebody out in, in the world might never even be thinking about, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? They just might be thinking of things like, how do I become a good mom? Or how do I... I'm depressed. How, how do I, you know, find fulfillment in life? And those are the kind of questions that we can latch onto and start with, not as an end to themselves, but as a springboard for the gospel. And say, you know what? 
In Jesus Christ, you can find true happiness. In Jesus Christ, you can know what it's like to be a good mom or dad. In Jesus Christ, you can be free from this addiction, if that's what's on your mind right now. But Jesus Christ is so much more. He came for more than just to make us happy. He came for more than just to make us a good mom or dad or a good child or to make us free from this addiction. He came to forgive our sins, right? And so over the course of many conversations, you can lead into that. But our starting place might be a very different point than the kind of knowledge and things that we take for granted. We have to start with the questions that people are asking and those cultural ideas or narratives that are ingrained in people's heads that are becoming further and further different than those of a few years ago when everybody went to church and understood these things at a basic level. You know, I, I thought of this again in real practical terms, right? Because what we, last year, I think it was said that we had more people at day camp that were from outside of our church than were from inside. And I think that's, that's great. That's a wonderful thing. Because we're, I mean, the gospel is so well presented in day camp, and I say that as an outsider, I have nothing to do with it. But it's so well organized and presented so well and intentionally and in different ways that it is a great place for somebody to hear the gospel. You know, and, and somebody might see the day camp brochures that are being printed and handed out today, and that might come to somebody who is a non-believer or a parent of a non-believing child, and they might look at that and say, I have no idea what this topic is, but I like the idea of free daycare, <laughs> you know? And that might be what hooks them, right? That might be all that's on their mind because they're not even thinking in gospel connotations or thinking about those kinds of things. But I would say that's great too because if that can bring them in, then we're able to talk to those children and the leaders and the counselors and the teachers are able to explain the gospel and amazing things happen, you know? But given the culture we're in, that just might be the starting point, right? It might not start with the gospel, but it could lead there as well. So in Paul's case, when he's among Gentiles, yeah, there's some things that he does differently, some things that he might do in a slightly different way than when he was in a synagogue or with Jewish people, but that's okay. He doesn't change his message, and he still proclaims what he needs to proclaim. He doesn't accept all ideas as good, but he uses those ideas as springboards to the gospel. Okay, real quickly, because we're running out of time, way number three, to the weak, Paul became weak. So now we have this third example, verse 22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Paul is saying that he comes across, as best as I can understand, this is the most confusing verse of the whole thing, to be honest. We get Jew and Gentile. He talks about those categories before. But here, it's a totally, a third category that doesn't seem to fit anywhere. He did reference weak before, when he was talking about meat sacrifice to idols, but I really don't think that's what he has in mind again, um, except in a very loose way, because here he's also using that same word, win. He's saying, to the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. Back there in chapter 8, he was talking about believers. Here, I still think he's, he's very much talking about unbelievers. So as best as I can figure, and some of the commentaries just weren't very helpful here, I think a lot of them are baffled too, um, I think what he's saying is that when he comes across a Gentile or a Jewish unbeliever that is weak, again, in conscience, he is willing to limit his freedoms for their sake, just as he was willing to do with believers in chapter 8. Okay? Remember, Paul described weak people as those who lack proper knowledge of what is truly sinful. 
um, or those who con whose consciences are really sensitive to things that might not actually be wrong, but it nevertheless are wrong for them. So I think Paul is saying here in verse 22 that when he comes across anybody like that, whether Jew or Gentile, he's willing to give up personal freedoms so that they don't feel as if they're being led to do something that is against their conscience. So Paul's willing to do whatever it takes to reach people. In the believing context, you know, do whatever it takes to not cause a believer to stumble, but also somebody who is of a similar type of mindset in the unbelieving context to, to win them, to give up his privileges so that he can accommodate that weakness. So now, Paul's illustrated his willingness to adapt in three different people groups. We've seen that. Jews, Gentiles, and this third category, those who are weak. And so that brings us to the final section, the summary statement of this entire passage, verse 22b through 23. It says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Okay, you can see at the end of that, it's out of a concern for people and out of a concern for Christ. I want them to be able to share in the same blessings that I have. I've been saved. I've been forgiven. My life has been transformed. And I want that same thing for anybody else. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes, even if it means limiting my freedoms, even if it means me being uncomfortable, living in a way that I'm not used to. Why? Because the gospel is more important than my own preferences. And Paul was willing to do all these things, to go in under the, the Jewish rites, and he was willing to um, have Timothy circumcised, and he, was, he would have been willing to do it himself if he was that young man. And he was willing to go into uh, this Gentile area of Athens and adapt things and speak about the gospel in slightly different ways, all so that he could reach them. He's willing to become all things to all people. I think that means that Paul's willing to become a sort of chameleon, you could say. And we should as well. You know, as a chameleon kind of changes its colors based on the background that it's at. I don't mean become hypocrites, right? Please understand what I'm saying. You, you know that. You know I'm not saying that. But rather, being a chameleon here means that we should be willing to change perhaps our manners, our methods, based on who we are around. Paul's calling us to adapt to the culture that we see around us when it will help us in our witness. Never calling us to sin. Never calling us to change the gospel. But for things that are cultural, that we can help our witness by adapting our manners around non-believers. So here's some examples. Because again, it's easy to say these, these statements, but we need to be putting it into real terms. So I'm told that in certain countries and cultures, um, alcohol, for example, is frowned upon, even by non-Christians, because of rampant drunkenness and immorality. Um, and I... I've heard that from several missionaries, like where it's just very extreme across all different types of people, all different religions. But in countries like Spain, I've also been told that to refuse a glass of wine from a host could be a huge insult to the host. So in one context, you would be more likely to refrain as a Christian, and in another, you might be more willing to accept. But there are some other examples of this as well, and I don't want you to get hung up just on that one. But if we continue to think down this line of thinking with a missionary context, um, I sent a message both to Matt and Suki Linsky, my brother and sister-in-law, and also to Bruce Jr. and Amber Althouse, um, because both of them have been on the mission field. And I could have asked, understand we have hundreds of missionaries, I could have asked. They're just easy to contact really quickly when I need help on a sermon. So 
That's why I contacted them, and I knew they would respond quickly. So I appreciate them both. Uh, but I asked them some questions about this passage. I said, hey, uh, Bruce and Amber, Matt and Suki, I'm preaching on this. I'd really love to know some of your answers to this. How is it that you have adapted in certain other cultures when you've been out in the mission field? And in what ways have you been willing to maybe take away certain privileges or rights or make yourself a little bit more uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? Give me some examples of that because I haven't been there. And so this is, these are some of the things that they responded with. Uh, Bruce Jr. relayed to me, uh, and I appreciate him so much, he wrote back with like a four-page paper, okay, that was like half the length of my sermon, and he did it like in one night. I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. You're the best. Anyway, I owe him something now. I don't know what. Um, you can help me out later. Uh, so uh, sermon brought to you by Bruce Jr. Um, he relayed to me that in some countries such as Kenya, even though it's usually extremely hot, uh, the culture is such that Bruce would dress up to preach, even if you're drenched in sweat, uh, because that is what the culture was like around them. But then on the other hand, in the same paragraph, uh, Bruce also told me that in Nepal, he preached without shoes, because that's what you do. So I figured I'd take uh, a moment, and I'm just kidding, I'm not going to, you know, nobody's going to greet me. Um, we're not, we're not going to do that. But that was their custom, right? Two different types of, of customs. Here's another example. In many Muslim-dominated countries, female missionaries wear uh, a hijab or, or a burqa. You know, you know that head covering thing, right? The full body, the full body thing. Um, it's a perfect example, I think, of what Paul is talking about here. It's not a moral issue. And to wear one in a country like Saudi Arabia is not the equivalent of renouncing Christ either. Um, in cultures like that, it's meant to be an expression of modesty among women. And so because not wearing one would become a barrier to accepting the gospel, women missionaries will often wear one. Just like Paul said, okay, I'm going to go through with this uh, purification rite, or have Timothy circumcised. Same idea. Uh, not necessary to get hung up with if it's going to hinder the gospel. Now, Amber said uh, in this letter that she didn't have to wear one when they were in Morocco because it was a little bit more of a progressive uh, Muslim country. But they mentioned that they've met many people who, who are in other nations that do have to. Uh, Matt and Suki also mentioned to me how contextualizing themselves in Tanzania meant living in a mud home like everyone else did, among other living adjustments as well, where their homes in America obviously were very different and much better. Again, these certainly apply to many other missionaries beyond the Linskys or the Althouses, but you get the idea. So here's the summary. As we've already said, Paul was willing to adapt his methods and his approach to the culture he found himself, he was in, uh, in order to win as many souls as possible. He said, quote, I have become all things to all people, but that by all means I might save some. Whatever it takes. What does that mean for us? What's the application? When you think of examples that Paul uses for us in individuals, as individuals, um, we should know that applying this will often mean sacrifices on our part, right? Like the Christian missionary in Saudi Arabia who has to wear a burqa to be heard at all. There may be times where we might have to adapt in uncomfortable or unfamiliar ways in order to be heard by the people around us. So we should be willing to give up some freedoms, I think, if it means that other people around us might have a greater chance of hearing the gospel. Secondly, I think we can apply this passage by asking the very direct question, 
How can we become all things to all people so that by all means we might save some? To answer that question, we, it might mean that first of all, like Paul, we have to ask ourselves another set of questions, such as what, what culture am I surrounded by? Paul understood the different categories around him. What are the categories around us? How can I begin speaking their language? And I'm not talking literally about you know, a literal language, but maybe what terms we're using in a church that we all understand, but maybe somebody in a non-church situation does not. Um, how can I think through my gospel presentation in such a way that I explain those terms? Um, what are the big questions of life that people are asking? How can I use the culture around me to shape the way I communicate the gospel? How can I go where people are today? How can I use the tools and the technology that people are using today to share the gospel? What specific questions or concerns are people around me raising? And how can I use those to help shape my presentation of the gospel? Those are some things I think you yourself can consider on how we as individuals can become like those not under the law so that we can win many of them. We can consider those, I think, individually. I think we can consider those corporately as a church. It's, it's worth thinking through. But Paul gives us this powerful example to follow. He had a passion for the lost, one we are all called to share in. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so may we meditate on this example this morning. Think of ways that we can individually adapt ourselves to remove any unnecessary hindrances so that our message of the gospel can go forth. And so may God give us the grace to, as Paul says, become all things to all people so that through his spirit, that by all means and any means necessary, in other words, whatever it takes, that we might save some. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that through your grace, that you would help us to truly apply this example that we see in the example of Paul. God, I pray that you would help us to consider those around us, that you would help us to be even more evangelistic in our mindset. Maybe we're at the place where we don't even think about ways that we could share our faith with others. May you awaken us to these possibilities. May you help us to see the cultures around us. May you help us to know how to adapt in ways that are not key to the gospel. May we never change the message, Lord, but God help us certainly to know how we can best reach those who are around us today. May you use us as lights in a dark world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.